You're listening to episode 125 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Hello from Nashville. In case you missed our huge news, Moonlin and I are moving to New York City, and 88 Cups of Tea will soon be produced from the publishing capital of America. As of today, we are on our seventh day of our massive road trip from California to New York. I am having the best time. Our first stop, we explored Zion and Horseshoe Bend on our way to Phoenix, Arizona, where we held our very first 88 Cups of Tea meetup. We've been having the most fulfilling and incredible time meeting our listeners in intimate settings. Thank you so much to our listeners who joined us in Phoenix, Dallas, and Tennessee. We love you all and we really enjoyed the conversations. We're heading out of Nashville today and moseying on up to Chicago. So we're having a meetup in Chicago this Saturday morning on March 31st from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. If you're around and you'd love to say hi, send me a message on Instagram or send me a tweet and I'll give you our location. In the meantime, if you have any recommendations on cool things to check out while in Chicago or on the way to Chicago, please let me know. We love food and nature and we love checking out neighborhoods that have personality. For the rest of our road trip, we're driving through Ann Arbor and Detroit in Michigan, then making our way through the northern parts of Ohio, then through Pittsburgh and Philly before we get to New York. So if you live in a town along our route and would love to say hi, let me know on social media. If you're super curious about our road trip adventures, be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to watch our latest stories. You can catch our road trip stories all the way from day one if you click on the highlight that says road trip at the very top of our Instagram account. I'm so excited to meet more of you in our community and thank you so much for taking the time to come out and say hi. Now on to our guest, I am so excited to have Roshni Chakshi on our show. Roshni is the author of the instant New York Times bestselling novel, The Star-Touched Queen and A Crown of Wishes. A very happy book birthday to Roshni and her middle grade debut, Aru Shah and the End of Time, that just released this week. In today's episode, we discuss all things Aru Shah and the End of Time, from the story inspiration to the research process and Roshni's world building. We touch on adapting mythology and folklore into your story and adapting it in a respectful way. And Roshni walks us through how she crafts lush and vivid descriptions in her stories. Further into our conversation, we talk about the importance of sharing your work and being open to critical feedback as a writer. And she shares advice on maintaining your author brand while writing across different age groups. Be sure to check out Roshni's show notes page to download the exclusive writing prompt she created for our community. Head over to our show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Roshni dash Chakshi and scroll all the way to the bottom till you see a box that says writing prompt. Roshni is also taking over our Instagram account today and we're giving away a copy of Aru Shah and the End of Time to two lucky 88 Cups of Tea listeners. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch your takeover and for the giveaway instructions. Now let's dive right in. Hey everyone, we have Roshni with us today. I am so excited to have her on. I know so many of you have requested for Roshni on the show and bada bing, bada boom, we've got her here. Roshni, how are you? I'm great. I'm so, so excited to be here. Thank you guys for wanting to hear my voice. That that makes you like one of four people in the world. So. I love you so much. You have no idea. And we allow listener questions on the show. And oh my gosh, you've got a lot of questions coming up in our conversation. I would love to just kick it off and ask you, 
how you first fell in love with writing. Oh my gosh. You're just like reach, reach <laughs> deep into your, into your fetal memory. I don't, you know, it's funny because there's this tradition that my parents did with both me and my two younger siblings. And it's when we were kids, they would hold this altar thing in front of you. And I think it would have a book on it or something representing different professions, engineering, medicine, nursing, etc. And supposedly I reached for a physics book. I did not become a physicist, but I think I just liked the book shape. I was like, what's that? I want that. That's not a thing I remember, but I still remember seeing pictures of it. And it's something my parents still talk about. There's the lock of my hair that's in some old physics books somewhere Mm -hmm. in the house. I'm not quite sure what that means, but maybe that's part of it. So who knows? From there, your parents, they noticed that you had a love for books. Were they encouraging of your writing? I know that writing, even though it's very scholarly, it's not seen, at least for me growing up, is not seen as a profession. And it's more of a hobby, but it's cool if you can do it at the same time. I can't tell you how many times that conversation has come up. I like literally every single brown party I go to. Your book is out. That's good. Now, are you going to go back to law school? Or like, are you, you know what I mean? (laughs) Did the thing that you wanted to do, did you get it out of your system? Can you go back to this? And I was really lucky. And I am really lucky with how supportive my parents have been. But I think sometimes I would write too many tiny stories and I would try to shove them on the family. And at one point, I think my dad was like, all right, we get it. You like words. And I was like, I wrote a book. And he was like, well, this isn't a real book. And I was like, what do you mean a real book? And he's like, well, a real book has to be read many times and it's a certain amount of pages. And then you have a literary agent and then you have a publisher and they turn it into a book with a spine and ISBN number. And I was like, what? And I was like, well, I'll show you old man. Oh, my are really close. I should add that. In. <laughs> love fantasy and sci-fi and so many other things. But that totally inspired me. I was like, well, then I'm going to write a real book and I will have an ISBN number. I will know what it is. I don't actually know what it is. <laughs> the fact that I have one is still very exciting. <laughs> Your dad was pretty cool about it overall. I mean, he just sounded yeah. like, at least he knew about it. Yeah. When did you take it more into consideration that it could even be a career? I think I'd always danced around wanting to write. I definitely was involved in my high school literary magazine and I was newspaper editor, but I thought that I wanted to be a journalist. And I think that what I liked about journalism was more or less the idea of telling stories, but I was always writing creatively. I just didn't think that anything would really happen with it. I still tried. I totally queried literary agents with my crappy Twilight fan fiction. They said no, which is totally understandable. But I kept like trying to write books through college and everything else. And I think for me, I had like this weird moment. I think it was a friend who brought it up when she was like, how come all of your characters don't have your name? And like, they don't look like you. They share nothing with you. And I realized then that that was the moment where I was writing around my own stories, trying to, I guess, write what I saw in the world when really what I needed to be doing was write what I didn't see and what I wanted to see. And then that's kind of where the idea for the Star Touched Queen came from. I I had it in college and then I graduated college with a very useful degree in 14th century British literature. And (laughs) I hope you marry well. I hope you marry rich. When you're an English major, at least for me, I was always told, so are you going to go to law school or are you going to become a teacher? And I decided to take a year off after graduation and study for the LSAT and work in a law. 
time. While I was doing that, I was writing secretly The Star-Touched Queen, and I wasn't really telling anyone about it. I was like, this is probably not going to go anywhere, but I just want to say that I did this for myself. Right. And that summer before I started law school that I signed with my incredible agent, Tao Lee, Star-Touched Queen was the first time that I started sharing things with critique partners. It's the first time I had a critique partner. It's the first time somebody ripped it to shreds because I think that's such a critical step as a writer of sharing your work and being willing to change it. So I did one year of law school. And then in March of that year, I got my first book deal. You are so brilliant. What? No, I don't know. Well, thank you for saying that. I think many things combined, it, it was good timing. It was a really almost feverish urgency that if I didn't do this, that I would not have the chance to do it later, which isn't true. Some of my favorite authors have been lawyers first and then became writers or are still lawyers and write as well. You know, there's no quite set path of how to do anything. Definitely genetics kicking in beauty and brains over here. I'm like trying to imagine myself even trying to study for law school. I would fall asleep the first sentence in trying to study. I can't even. My mom would be so proud of you. You're like the ideal daughter. So many kids are much better at law school. Like, you know, I didn't do great on the LSAT, but when it came to those tests, I was great. And it was the first time I was top of anything. And because, yeah, the whole secret is that you don't answer the question. You just... (laughs) Going down logical branches of what it could be if you change the language here, if you evaluate it this way, it's a delight. You an artist as well? Oh my gosh. I think it's insane to me that you were able to go to law school, study, do the LSATs, everything. I know you said you also found the time you were doing it for yourself, but you managed to also get represented. So you got critique partners, which is what I want to rewind a little bit. It sounded like you were doing a lot of the writing yourself. You did not go to any writing classes or take any writing workshops, except that you found a critique partner. And that was basically about it for your first novel. Is that kind of what I'm getting? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happened. How were you able to shape your story? For me, I could write, 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 but then I need structure and guidance. I'm sure the critique partner wasn't doing that many corrections. It was mostly you. And then your critique partner was just giving you his or her opinion. Where did that genius come from? I want to take you to all my family reunions. (laughs) They're like, so what do you really do? And I'll just be like, talk to him. Let me break it down for you, okay? Where's my mic? I need a hype man before all these events. I will gladly be your hype man all day, every day. (laughs) I will dance as I'm hyping you up. Done and done. For real, where did this brilliance come from? That's very kind of you to call it that. I think for so many writers, it's almost like you read so many stories that you learn from reading. And then, you know, my first two books are fairy tale retellings. So in a way, I was already given the plot. I just had to figure out what were the characters' motivations within it and how did I move them through the story? How did you know to figure that out? It's weird because The Star Touch Queen, even though I wrote it fairly fast, I think it only like four or five months or so, but all those ideas that went into the book had been in my head since high school. And even before that, because they were ideas of the character herself, Maya. And I remember when I started writing The Star Touch Queen, I remembered the advice of my English teacher in high school. He taught evil honors class. It was great. And in evil honors class? Yeah. We just like read all the Shakespearean tragedies with great villains. That's awesome. I had the best teachers. I really have the best teachers. But we also read Milton's Paradise Lost. And there's a great line that Lucifer says, and it's when he's thrown out of heaven and he angrily announces, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And it's one of those ideas that I then just sort of 
kept with me in my head because my emo useless self in high school was like, wow, he sounds really hot. I started thinking like, what would a girl version of this be like? What would make me want to do this? So it's not, I sat down and was like, this is how I'm going to move this character through here. It was more just, what is the thing that I really want to read and how would I want it presented to me? That was good. Before we go a little bit further, I also want to go into where you grew up because you grew up in Georgia. Yeah. I'm from New York, born and raised. And in the city, it's definitely a melting pot. And I remember when I went to Florida with my family and my New Zealand grandma was visiting. She took care of my mom when my mom was studying in New Zealand in her high school days. And my New Zealand grandma is super white, blue eyes, used to have blonde hair, now white hair. She came to visit us on family vacation and we were walking in this town in Florida and crossing the street. My God, we got such condescending looks, looks of disdain, like they were disgusted by us, except for my grandma. They looked at my grandma with respect, like a person walking across the street. And when my little sisters went to the supermarket, I was not there with them, but they were with my mom. There were kids in that town that called my sisters the N-word. My sisters are about 11 years old. Kids, they can be so cruel. Absolute a-holes. Some of them can be. So I encountered that. And it was heartbreaking for me because all I had before the experiences in Florida were in Disney World. And I didn't know that outside of Disney World, there were people like this. It was hard. But that was that one incident. For you, because you are mixed Filipino and Indian, right? Yes, I am. I mean, <laughs> duh, you're so gorgeous, girl. So what was it like for you? I know being in Georgia, I've never been to Georgia. Just my experiences in Florida, I just couldn't help but want to see if there's anything that you kind of connected with from my experiences in Florida growing up in Georgia, or if it was totally opposite. Some of that definitely did happen. I think for me, I was really lucky in the sense that I went to a very diverse school and all the teachers had had students of color before. And so they knew how to engage us in conversation without otherizing you. And I think that that's so important. Atlanta itself is just a pretty diverse place to be, but the South is not without its monsters. There were certainly racist moments and I don't even know how to explain it. It's like you can go to your enemy's home in the South and they might absolutely hate you, but they will still offer you sweet tea and white cake. Do you know what I mean? I've met some people like that in LA. Yes, who've moved from the South. It's funny because I think that when I think about how much I love writing weird, strange monsters, I think about the South because they'll like stop for etiquette. Like they'll still follow the same lines, even if they don't like you. Do you know what I mean? Mm, Yes. (laughs) Because that's how things are done and you have to respect the rules of the place. Well, that's like just some background about the South itself. But for me, I think my biggest struggle was not feeling Indian enough or not feeling Filipino enough. I mean, I'm sure you got this a lot too. Did you ever have people tell you that, you you know, you're beautiful because you're mixed? Yes. Well, yeah. kind of. They're like, oh, must be because of the Southeast Asian blood in you. And I was like, hmm. Yeah. I feel so guilty right now. Just now, I literally just slipped down like, damn, you're so gorgeous. So are you. But I just want to say you are absolutely beautiful, (laughs) not only because you are mixed, because of everything. You and I can totally say these things to one another. I'm talking about other people looking in. Do you you know what I mean? And they they just sort of appropriate your culture, or not like even appropriate, they just sort of exoticize you for not clearly belonging to one thing or another. And being surprised when I knew something Indian or being able to say some Gujarati or some Tagalog or whatever else, as if I don't have ownership over those sounds. Yes, that's a really yeah. good point. That, that's the kind of stuff that I experienced 
And it just became more pronounced as we got older. I saw your photos that you posted on social media, and I thought you were the cutest little thing with your glasses. Oh, it was so cute. I'm like, excuse me, you should see my freaking middle school photos in elementary school. You could write a character out of that one. Gotta back it up now. Make sure it doesn't happen. Like, literally, is how I feel. They're coming your way, and you're gonna be like, oh, God, I gotta put this in my spam folder. You think that you looked dorky or anything like that. And I thought you looked so cute. I was like, oh my gosh, you're definitely someone that I would have wanted to be friends with. (laughs) I love that you shared that. I totally forgot where I was going with this. (laughs) That was always the disconnect for me of like, who am I? What am I? Can I be both? Is that okay? It's come up a lot with my writing as well. You get some salty people on Instagram being like, what are you doing writing this story? What do you know? How many times have you been to India or like quizzing me on How much of your own language do you know? And where are your sources from? And I don't see them doing this to other writers of color. I think that there's this almost territorial about these stories. And what we have to remember is I'm first generation American. And so these are tales of diaspora and they still belong to me. When those people say these things, are they fully Indian or fully Filipina or Filipino? Yeah, I haven't gotten it too much from the Filipino side, but the Indian Yeah, I'm very confused. And this is something slightly related. When I was doing more acting in New York, I remember being in the show and I was one of the only Asian on the show at that time. I thought that there would be more excited reactions from our own people being supportive and saying, oh my gosh, wonderful, there's representation. But because they turned my character into a quote-unquote nerdy character with glasses and everything, I got more online criticism, all this stuff, calling me ugly and fat and all that stuff from specifically my own people. And they were so pissed. They're like, why, instead of being excited that there is at least a little bit more Asian people on screen, it's more so, how dare she perpetuate and deepen that horrible stereotype of nerds and really dug that in, not realizing, okay, you know, you got to earn your place before you can really say something, at least in this industry, or else no one's really going to listen to you. It was work for me. I just felt like, wow, my own people, instead of get it, girl, good thing, at least you got a spot or you're doing your thing. Congrats or anything like, no, it was attacking after attacking. And I can see now that I'm older, like back then I was like, oh my gosh, what? I wasn't cool with that, but I can see, especially what you just said about they're wondering, do we have that ownership? Are we representing the right way? Yeah. And I get it. It's like a territorial thing. So how do you handle that? Do you write back? Do you explain? Or are you just like, listen, it is what it is. And I don't need to explain anything. I am exposed to both sides. So I have absolute ownership of both. I mean, that's essentially what I say. Even if they're a little cruel in their wording, if they're at least not personally attacking me or threatening me, I do try to engage and respond with things like at least try to read the book before you think that I've done XYZ terrible things and have dishonored my ancestors, my cows. How dare you disrespect my cow? (laughs) Yeah, my cows are great. They're really cool. They're they're miniature Jersey cows. This is like such a side note. But anyway, yeah, we have named after ice cream. We obviously don't eat them because we're Hindu. That's all you can say to people because the truth is you're not going to change everyone's minds and you're not going to make everyone happy. And at the end of the day, it just comes down to, are you proud of the work that you've done? Do you feel as though you've raised both yourself and the people around you who are like you? And that's kind of it. And it's interesting because that conversation can also dovetail into feeling with women of color, particularly that there's only one spot. And so if you take it, then there's not room for anyone else. I've noticed that a lot within like the 
Asian American female community, that there's this sort of, oh, you published the story, that means I can't do it. And it breeds this competitiveness mm-hmm. that shouldn't be there. And that I see with Black women. Oh, it's so different. They're like, that's my sister out there doing her yeah. thing. And why don't we have more of that? Another. And why are we so cruel and vicious? I think it's a cultural thing. And that's also like not true for everyone. But I think that with industry and small magazines, sometimes you will get responses of, oh, sorry, we just published an Asian-ish story. So it doesn't matter if that person's Japanese and you're Filipino or whatever the differences they've taken your spot. There was a lot of that mentality and perspective also in the acting world. This was like almost eight to 10 years ago. It was pretty competitive. If one person got a role, they wouldn't want to be friends with you. Not all, but some wouldn't even want to smile at you in the audition rooms. And it just sees you like, oh, she's the enemy. Instead of get it, girl, we should support each other. And I'm seeing that it's starting to morph a little bit more now in this generation. It makes me happy. We're actually trying to not pick each other, you know? (laughs) Yes. And I do think it has a lot to do with culturally, too. A lot of us have parents who are immigrants. That's actually something I talk about with my actor friends. Like, I just don't understand back then why it was so competitive and why some people just weren't as friendly. Even if you got the role that they didn't get, why couldn't you just be friends? Because you can help them work on the next role and then they'll likely book it and you won't. It's very similar to your book world, your writing world. We wonder if it has to do with culturally our parents being immigrants. So we're kind of ingrained with the mentality of we sacrifice so much for you children. If you don't get this, that's it. Da, 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 da. That's how I was raised with my mom. I know everybody's different. Maybe your parents weren't as harsh as my mom growing up. They were just like that. You know, the funny thing though is like now if we anticipate one of the parents are going to say something, my siblings and I take the speech from them before they can say it. Oh. Going like, I immigrated to this country to give you a better life. And I have X amount of money in my pocket. And this is how you repay me. And it's stuff like, what are we going to watch on Netflix? Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, absolutely. Dad is taking it back. He's like, wait a minute. You didn't immigrate. I did. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. You guys are hilarious. I feel like if I say that now, I think I have cracked jokes like that with my mom where I take the speech before she does. And then she'll just like roll her eyes and she's like, ugh. But my mom's changed so much, thank goodness. She's adapted with the times. I wonder if the cultural background and how we were raised, and again, many of our Asian sisters and brothers, like the way they were raised, where you're just ingrained with the mentality, if you don't get this, whatever it is that you're aiming and your goal or whatever it is, your dream, that means your parents, everything that they sacrifice and our ancestors and grandparents sacrifice, then we're gonna F everything up. I wonder there's something from that that also encourages that toxic competitive behavior. I know there's got to be a root to it. What is that deeper rooted cause and why? No, it's interesting because it's like, you know, what you're saying is sort of the survivalist mentality. Yeah. Then in other communities, that survivalist mentality manifests as a rising tide lifts all boats versus within our community. It's a I'm just here out for myself. It is beginning to change. And that really makes me happy. I think it takes more people like yourself that have to stand strong and be that lighthouse in showing that example of what you want to see more out there. I could see that because you seem so warm, so inviting, so welcoming on your social media. And I could tell that's like, you know, just from your voice. Every family reunion. Again, I will just need a mic and a dance floor. That's all. And I will hype you up, boo-boo. Don't you worry. I got you. I think when more people who meet you see that, especially when they're authors, 
or those who are aspiring to be authors, when they come up to meet you at book events, then you're instilling that newer generation of aspiring writers who then remember, okay, I want to be like Roshni. I want to be that person to make people feel welcome and encouraged and feel like a community and supported rather than butting heads against each other or pitting against each other. It's difficult. I think, like you said, times are changing. I think because it's so closely tied to a lot of authors, a lot of their works, especially I'm hearing a lot more now are being tied in with movie deals and all that stuff. So I think the world of acting and entertainment and producing all that is kind of melding with writing and all of that. I noticed it on the entertainment side too, where Asian women actresses are a lot more vocal and just stand strong and are really starting this whole movement of being like sisterhood. The important thing is times are changing. It is slowly changing. I wish it would change a little faster, but at least the movement is there. Yeah, we are not a monolith. Yes. Our conversation, Yen, like don't leave yourself out of this too. It has to take people willing to talk about these things as opposed to pretending like it didn't happen or that yeah. that bad blood's not there, like those kind of things. Yes. So, so us. Woohoo. I did, but take you to my family outings. Thank you. Rosh, I do want to get into Arusha and the end of time and squeeze in some listener questions. I'm so excited for you. Congratulations, first of all. And can you give a little bit of a background? What is Arusha and the end of time about? Everything I could say about the book, it's Taylor Moon meets Percy Jackson. So Rick Riordan presents is the brainchild of Rick, who is seriously the most amazing human being. I'm just so happy with the entire Disney family. Both of my publishing families are awesome. I love them. What Rick wanted to do, and what my editor Stephanie Lurie wants to do, is to find more mythological-based adventures from own voices authors. So I'm really, really lucky that Aru was chosen as the launch title, which is great. Congratulations. That's massive. Thank you. So that's sort of like the background behind how Aru got to be part of the Rick Riordan Presents family, but Aru is not part of the Percy Jackson universe. Like, it's a question I get a lot. It's totally understandable, but I don't think that Aru and Percy would get along. I think, first of all, she would have a crush on him and it would go on. (laughs) And secondly, she would just be like, I've got a lightning bolt and you just have this cool Riptide pen and mine's better. And Percy would just be like, Mine is better. What are you talking about? They're two big divas. They have to have their own universes. I love that. I was reading part of the summary for Aru Shah and the End of Time, where your main character goes into the Museum of Ancient Indian Art and Culture. And I'm sure you had a whole research process for that. Aru lives in the Museum of Ancient Indian Art and Culture with her mom, who's an archaeologist and a curator and just an awesome woman. So I went to undergrad at Emory University. And on campus, we have the Carlos Museum. And I had like classes around there. And it's a small museum. And it's so magical. And every single time I would walk through it, I felt like I was at home. So that's sort of where the idea for our living in a small museum came from. I've been going to so many museums my whole life. One of my cousins is an art curator and he's just way cooler than I am. Whenever we're hanging out with him, he just brings us around and shows us how to see and be cultured. (laughs) That's awesome. So I'm going to jump into listener questions. We're going to kick it off first with Kimberly B who asked, she'd love to know about you using mythology to inspire your work and what advice you have for using folklore that that your readers may not be familiar with. And she's so excited about you being on the show. Thank you so much, Kimberly. The wonderful thing about mythology is that it does not have one form. I take a lot of inspiration from Filipino folklore and Hindu mythology. And each of those stories has a different life depending on the region where it's told. I think that 
speaking to the similarities versus the differences is always going to be a bit of a tension. You know, someone's going to say that they heard the story the other way, and that's fine. And that's, I guess, for me, the thing to remember with mythology, that I may not get everyone's story right, but that I'm getting the truth of my relationship with the story right, if that makes any sense. The difficulty of adapting folklore, especially folklore mythology, particularly with Hindu mythology for me, is it has an active religious context. All of the stories from Hindu mythology are found in, you know, our holy texts or are about stories where the gods are reincarnated and are heroes of the tale. So there's a fine line to walk there between you don't want to exoticize your own care, but you also want to say that this is a story that's beautiful and still has a lot of resonance. You know, like it's a living story and that there's a way to update it and still be respectful. Kimberly's going to be thrilled with that. Now, Janella Angeles wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) She said, "Ah, I'm so excited that Rosh is going to be on the podcast. She loves your YA and she loves you as a person. And she's so excited for your upcoming middle grade. As a writer who's thinking about dabbling into both age categories, she's curious to know how you tackle the transition from YA to middle grade and what's your best advice to writers hoping to creatively branch out in that way, especially in terms of how it relates to maintaining your author brand. Oh, man. Janelle, why would you do this to me? We're supposed to be friends. This is a hard question. For me, writing middle grade was kind of like, Finally, I'm going to exercise all my middle school demons. and I'm going to enact my vengeance on the dude who dumped me over AIM. So mean. But, you know, like (laughs) it forced me to get back into the zone of like, what was I doing in middle school? What did I care about? And I think that what really distinguishes so many middle grades is the voice. Kids have such a strong bullshit detector. Um, And that's actually what Rick Riordan helped me with the most when he was editing and reading through Aru. He was like, a kid's going to call BS on that and that and that and teaching me how to walk the fine line of telling the story, but never talking down to a kid because that's really authentic. And for me, what I ended up doing was rereading one of my favorite books that I read in middle school. And that is the Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging books by Louise Renison. They're like middle school Bridget Jones and they're hilarious. (laughs) That sounds so good already. They're the funniest books I've ever read. They pretty much sat in my skull all throughout middle school because like everything that this character is feeling, I felt it too. For me, I have to be really protective about what I'm reading before I'm writing both my YA and my middle grade stuff. I can't read young adult when I'm writing Aria and I can't read middle grade when I'm writing my young adult and just to maintain that same voice the whole time. And that was kind of the challenge with writing Ariel. I cannot draft that book as quickly as I've drafted some of my young adult stuff simply because the minute that I waver on the voice, I've lost the whole thread of the story. Like it doesn't matter if the plot's there, if the voice isn't there, then the soul of it's gone. Thank you for that. Next we have Jean Rodrigue. She says she is so excited for your interview. And she asked, first of all, she's obsessed with your lush sensory writing. And she said, even your newsletter is incredible. And she'd love to know if you have any tips for making dry writing more vivid. Because for Jean, descriptions are not her forte. Well, that's very, very kind of you. Thank you very much, Jean. So my favorite sensory writers are Angela Carter, uh, Catherine Valenti, and Lainey Taylor. I really love a lot of their work. Actually, like all of their work. For me, when I'm getting into that sort of descriptive mode, 
I really like to push myself on the idea of the textures of something and like using contrasting words. I remember this description from All the Light We Cannot See, where the main character is describing eating a peach and she hasn't had a peach in a long time. And she calls it wet sunlight. It's so small. It's not fancy, fancy words with lots and lots of syllables. It's the easiest paring down of something and yet using contradictory sensory language to evoke it. So that would be my advice. When you get down to the setting, you're really trying to push yourself with it. What is it that you would see and how can you feel that in a way that you're not perceiving it? I try not to read the questions from listeners beforehand because I don't like it affecting the conversation. So I'm reading it really quickly right now just to pick out which ones. Whoa, a lot of our listeners have all mentioned about your lush descriptions. Like everybody's using the words lush description, no joke. Oh, thank you. I'll read it to you super quick. You already answered this, but I just want to let you know like what other people have said. Robin Castro wrote, yes, Rosh, I've been waiting for an interview with her. How that girl comes up with such dreamy and wildly lush descriptions is beyond me. And we have Allison Elaine Warsham, who also said, Roshni is an amazing writer. I envy her lush descriptions. <laughs> Somebody else wrote, Anika Naim wrote, I would love to know how was Roshni able to develop such a distinct and absolutely beautiful writing style? Basically the same as Lush. I see that. Aww. Everybody is just talking about your style, which is amazing. I'll wrap up the listener questions with one more who had a pretty good question. I know we touched a little bit about the museum part with your middle grade. And now Allison Elaine Warsham would love to know about your research process for your stories overall, as she says they obviously deal with a rich and diverse mythology. Oh, thank you. So, you know, for my first three books, like Star Touch Queen, A Crown of Wishes, and Aru, I was really drawing a lot on the stories that my grandmother told me growing up. And so I've had these stories sitting with me since I was a kid. And for me, the research process was to find, well, what other literature can I find about the story? And what are the gaps between what I knew growing up and what I'm being told now is like a direct translation from different sources? And just finding a happy middle ground or even not and choosing to go with an interpretation that was more personal for me. And it's been a different experience with my newest young adult series, which is The Gilded Wolves because that's set in 1889 Paris, which is like La Belle Epoque era. It's the beautiful years. And it's funny that it's called the beautiful years because this is a time of rampant colonialism. You know, the British were still in India. Spain still had control of the Philippines. You had world fairs where they would import Negro villages as part of the spectacle. Wow. You know, this is like an ugly time that still had a lot of beauty to it. So how do you hold those two ideas in your heart? And how do you sh show them? So I think that's why, well, we have the title, The Gilded Wolves, gilded like a, it's just a sparkly veneer for something monstrous beneath. And my research for that was really time consuming. And I learned a lot because you have to consider with your own world building what's possible within this world, even with a fantastical element. And it's a world building research that goes into all of my work because Whenever you're writing fantasy, you really want to know the rules of your world, what's allowed and what isn't allowed. And how do you make sure that you're expressing that with just your character walking through the world? You get so much about 
characters and their different voices simply from like what that person would notice that someone else wouldn't. Like I've got a boy, you know, he's not white. And so what he notices are people staring at him because he isn't white versus like the white character in the book doesn't notice these things because that would never happen to them. And that's sort of how you can filter your world down. Thank you for diving deep with that. So that wraps up our listener questions. What are some small manageable steps that you would advise our writers in our community to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? Read poetry. Find time just to refresh your soul with someone else's words. One slim volume of poetry that I really like is The Cinnamon Peeler by Michael. Oh gosh, I don't know how to say his last name. Um, It's spelled O-N-D-A-A-T-J-E. Sounds correct. That title is really vivid. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for recommending that. Now, do you have any other books that you can recommend for our listeners to check out, whether it's craft books or if it's anything that really impacted you? I know you mentioned some books already earlier in our conversation. You know, craft book, it's funny. I am reading one right now that I really have been enjoying, and it's The Emotional Craft of Fiction by Donald Nass. Oh, it's got some really great exercises in it. And what I really like about that book is it also has examples, excerpts from the books that he's mentioning. And I find it's really helpful because one of the biggest things we always hear with our writing is show, don't tell. But how many ways can you show something? And what is a different way that you might show it? You know, just to sort of subconsciously clue into the reader what the character is going through. Craft book recommendation. I'm trying to think my, my fiction book recommendation. I've loved so many things. I, <laughs> my heart hurts. Oh, I'm going to have to come back to that one. No worries. Let's end it off with where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, gosh. Well, you can find me on Instagram at my name. I just do a lot of Insta stories where my cat is stalking me. Oh my God, that's so cute. It's bizarre. I did a recent Insta saga where my fiance, he's a very smart man, I promise, like had his poker night thing with his with his boyfriends and he Smirnoff iced our entire apartment. What does that even... It was this game. If you find a Smirnoff ice, you have to kneel and drink the whole thing. Oh my God. Gosh, am I a horrible person for saying this? I don't know how old you guys are. <laughs> But anyway, it was really funny. Under like the toilet seat when you lift it, it was like in a silver drawer. He just went all out. That is awesome. I think I need to play that with my guy friends and make them drink it. You should. It'll annoy them so much. It was really funny. Yeah. So my Insta stories are just silly. And then you can find me on Twitter at Rashni Chakshi again. And my email website contact form. I always make the best effort to respond to every single email that I get. And I really, really love talking to readers. So reach out to me if you want to, or laugh at the things that I post. Roshni, you are the best. Thank you so much. Seriously, I love talking to you so much. This was the best. This is definitely the highlight of my day. (laughs) And that wraps up our episode with Roshni Chakshi. Roshni, oh my God, you are such a joy to talk with. Thank you for that uplifting and fun conversation. I really love chatting with you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please say hi to Roshni over on Twitter at Roshni underscore Chakshi and check out the amazing writing prompt that she created for our community by heading over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Roshni dash Chakshi. Don't forget to also check out her Instagram stories takeover and also for the giveaway instructions by heading over to Instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea. 
If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.